and welcome to the Book of Leah's podcast. My name is Cara and I am your host. Hi guys, thank you for joining me for episode 6 of Book of Leaves. So I was away last week. We were in Amsterdam for the weekend and very well behaved, I must have you know. But we basically just relaxed and ate so much gorgeous vegan food the whole weekend and did like boat tours and everything. It was a lovely time. So I didn't get to release an episode last week, but I thought it would be all right and I'd get away with it because these two episodes, episode six, and then the next podcast, episode seven, is already live. And I kind of put these two together because in this one, I'm talking to a guy called Simone Tizo, and Simone is from Italy. He lives in Cork at the moment. Vasco Carto from Cork Crafts from episode one of the podcast put me in touch with him. And he basically works in some various fields, but he does a lot of research into the environment and specifically what we're eating. He has loads of random facts and everything that he says. I have linked the reports that he mentions that the the statistics, there we go, are coming from. So they're all in the show notes. If you're listening to this on a podcast provider where the show notes are a little bit jumbled up and the links aren't actually links, just words or something, if you go on to bookofleavespodcast.com and click podcast in episode six, you will see all the links properly linking to the pages they're supposed to go to and the reports and everything if you want to have a look there instead. And, you know, I like to think the website is kind of pretty and stuff. But that's episode six. And episode seven, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Ailish Brosnan, who has been vegan for 22 years. And Dr. Brosnan has some really useful courses that she provides for people wanting to switch to a plant-based diet or improve their lifestyle and health for whatever reason. So I just thought she was someone, having been plant-based vegan for so long, that she would be nice to talk to after hearing this episode. For anyone out there who was wondering about a vegan diet and where do you start? So we don't go into that too much in here. So I have Dr. Ailish Brosnan coming up next. And that episode is only short, so you can listen to the two within within two hours for sure. And I will say in this one, I mean, you could spend literally hours talking about the health side of veganism. So I think that has barely touched the tip of the iceberg in here. We go into mostly the environmental side of things. However, if you are interested in learning about plant-based plant-based nutrition, I would suggest that you listen to this amazing podcast by an Australian guy called Simon Hill called Plant Proof. I mentioned it in the very first introduction episode. I listened to that and it blows my mind. Some of the specialists that he interviews, they're just so well versed. They're geniuses in their field and the breakthroughs that are being made are amazing yet we don't hear about them because obviously pharmaceutical companies and you know pharma and whatnot 
they can make money off people's diseases and unhealthy lifestyles if people need to take medication or whatever and but it's all every episode in regards to nutrition that Simon Hill does is all genuine backed up science and he never he never goes down like hot take routes everything is backed up with actual science and some really fascinating things so if any of you are interested in nutrition plant-based or not it is a really good podcast to listen to so I would recommend you go to Plant Proof and there's so many episodes to choose from be them you know if you want to if you've got diabetes or if you've got IBS or if you just want to know what to kind of look out for on a plant-based diet that's a really good podcast to go to yeah we didn't go into it too much here we just kind of focused on the environmental side of things now it is long enough so I will let you go listen to it before I do that please don't forget to review the podcast if you haven't already subscribe to it if you can or like or share regram thank you so much to my friends who've been doing that and non-friends new people fans of the show so lovely to see people sharing it it's amazing and if any of you want to support the podcast financially I do have a patreon account patreon.com forward slash book of leaves that would be amazing if any of you want to support the show that way and one last thing as well to say this was recorded via zoom myself and Simone weren't actually in the room together the next two episodes are actually recorded the same way so the audio might be a little funny at times but I think it's good enough quality hopefully it won't be too harsh on your ears but that is why sometimes the sound dips in and out and I've tried to edit it as much as I can so that is why it sounds a little different to previous episodes is because we're not in the same room together. So we were having this chats through this app called Zoom, which is relatively new to me. But that's just on the sound. All right, I won't keep you guys much longer. Here is Simone and enjoy. I'll talk to you after. Simone, thank you so much for freeing up your evening to have a chat. Thank you for having me. You're very, very welcome. Now, uh, I guess before we kind of get into all things sustainability and veganism, where are you from originally? Where did you grow up and what kind of influences did you have that inspired your love of the environment? So I'm from Padova, which is in Veneto. Uh, for reference, that would be about 30 kilometers west of Venice. Okay. So that's where I've grown up. It's a big, big, large, huge valley with a lot of rivers going into it. Um, there's a big industrial center in the area as well next to Venice. Most people don't know, but there's actually Mestre, which is it used to be a big petrochemical uh, implant that would have all these smokes and make people kind of a bit sick. Uh, that's on the, on the decay now that all the industry has kind of gone out into Romania, Poland and whatever. But, um, to be fair, um, our region has always been very polluted because it's a valley in the middle of mountains. There's not a lot of wind moving air over, uh, like you come over to Ireland and you literally feel like you're on a boat. Like you're in the middle of the ocean. There's always kind of wind coming by very strongly. You <laughs> see the clouds that, that like you're looking at a cloud and five seconds it's over the 
the horizon. Like it's just yeah. it's gone. And you're like, what the hell? It's like your sense of time becomes strange. Um, we have rain that literally it will come to you, this huge mass of rain, start raining and keep going for about two weeks. Wow. You're completely, you know, just everything is flooding. I was noticing here the rivers, they don't have how do you call them? Banks, maybe? Mm-hmm. Like the river in my region would have five meter tall um, masses of land on both sides for the whole duration of the river. So I'm thinking that might be because our rivers vary way more than they do over here. So yeah, I think I was maybe a little bit just, I don't know, I think I was always aware of things around me. I was aware of political issues. I was aware of um, like when Al Gore came out with An Unconvenient Truth, uh, I saw it already. But yeah, I was always very interested. It just made sense to me. Why wouldn't you want to preserve nature? Why wouldn't you want to, to care about the planet around you? It's, it's what sustains you anyway, you know? Yeah. And even my grandparents would have been in the countryside in the middle of cornfields. And it's just such a beautiful environment that I, I just don't see why you wouldn't preserve it. Now, I'm, I'm remembering as well, there might have been a little bit of a connection to the animals, despite me growing up in the city, so not being really connected to any. I only really had a cat. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I actually cannot pinpoint. I think it's always been just obvious to me. No, it's, it was, I, think, I think a lot of people were all kind of born, for want of a better term, with a kind of, I know you're not, as a baby, you don't really appreciate the planet, but as a toddler, you know, we have a love for animals and we like nature and we like like nature is all colorful and sporadic and crazy and that's kind of what kids kind of go for and sometimes I think over over years it's just it's kind of hammered out of us or trained out of us or we just get so used to routine and you remind me that my favorite thing as a kid was to go on the mountains because I have the Alps I'm only two hours away of car from me so I would go in the summer and I would either go to these camps with other kids where we'd go on a mountain, a different mountain every day, basically going up it in the middle of forest. My natural element was definitely the forest and the mountain. I thought even maybe I might have grown up and become um, how do you call it? like a shepherd or something like that, which is now a bit ironic considering uh, I've become vegan. But uh, the dream was to just be there with the animals in the middle of nature. That's so cool. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can I can relate to that as well. I remember growing up as a child and just wanting to be a fairy in the forest. That's all I wanted. The <laughs> animals. When I watched Snow White, I was like, "That's me talking to the birds all the time." Yeah. Wow. No, I think it's nice, and I think when people kind of if people become more aware of the environment and the planet, they kind of reawaken. They're kind of part of their inner child. You know, it's 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 nice to have nature around you and hug a tree every now and a while and talk to a cat or a dog, you know. What was your cat's name? Uh, Micho. It literally means cat. Oh, does it? I call my cat cat. Um, <laughs> well, it's kind of like not the, like the Italian word for cat is gatto. So Micho is more of a cutesy word for it, but it literally means cat. I think because we found him, it was, um, he was a little orphan. Oh. So we just called him Micho for a while. And then he, st- he was responding to Micho. We're like, well, it's too late now to decide a name. It's just gonna be cat. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's yeah, very good. I love it. Cat, come in for your dinner. It's perfect. You were talk you were talking a little bit earlier about uh before we started uh recording about your dad being a kind of an influence as well. He always seemed to be aware of the environment and 
a bit of ahead of his time per se. Yeah, I was mentioning that already in high school he was studying solar panels and his final, we have a final thesis that you do when you finish high school, like a project. And if I remember correctly, he was tracking the temperatures of the planet over, um, I think, a 40 years period. Wow. And he was noticing this constant growth, which, as we know today, has kept going then after as well. So that would have been in the 80s. Uh, he already knew about that. He already knew how solar panel worked. He already knew what could be done to reduce emissions in that sense. I suppose everything he buys is usually energy saving. He tries to buy stuff that's good quality, stuff like that. He was not around that much. But when he was around, I think he would use his time to send me some messages, you know, to pass on some values. So I can definitely say he did that. Sure, that's good. And did you ever consider, I know you said you were, as a child, you considered working as a shepherd. Yeah, so herding sheep and everything. Did yeah. your, your dream- but it wasn't about the sheep. It was about just being in nature and doing anything that would just get me out of the city, pretty much. Sure. Did, did your dream of becoming a shepherd, did, <laughs> did you ever try to pursue that or, or any other career in regards to the environment? No, to be honest, I think I've always been, I've changed now, but it used to be very negative. So whatever was beautiful and nice, I was like, ah, that's just a dream. Put it away. Yeah. So I kind of done that. And then I've aged and I was like, wait, if I put my effort into it, I actually can do this and this and that. So maybe we should give it a try. You're like, maybe it's not too late and we can still uh, learn and figure it out. So you ended up going into engineering then. So was that something you just did to kind of, for the sake of doing something to get some work? Yeah, actually, that's pretty much how it ended up being because my dad was an engineer himself mm. and I felt that I was a bit like him. So I said, oh, I'll probably, I'll probably be able to do the same. But I found myself completely passionless towards it. I found it really, really, really hard. And uh, um, at the same time, I was a musician. Um, I really loved music. And I think most of my effort actually went in that direction. And I should have noticed it back then. But the bands that I put together, I don't think anyone else in the band was really uh, aspiring to really become a musician as I was. I was a bit dumb because I didn't move to Milan or Rome, which in retrospect would have been the only way to become a professional musician. There was no music scene in my city. And as I aged, it was disappearing more and more. I remember being 18 and there were about 10, 12 uh, pubs and bars where you could play music. And then I remember being 25 and there were two. Wow. So, yeah, when I came here, I had left music behind completely. And then I saw the music scene in Cork, which is this you know, tiny village. If I think about my own city would be three times as big. Yeah. And then here, like five gigs a day everywhere like oh my god maybe i should consider the music thing again so that's how i ended up for three years in a wedding band which is something i didn't mention earlier okay and then eventually focus on my other business very good so at what point then did you actually make your way to ireland and what why did you was it like a business venture or did you just come on a holiday and decide to stay or why how did you uh, end up in ireland it was a love story I was in love with this Italian girl and just one month after meeting her, I remember she was celebrating. She was like, oh yeah, I made it for the Erasmus. You know, the, the Erasmus is an exchange program for who know, doesn't know with universities. So you can go to an university of another city in Europe and you don't need to pay your tuition because you're already paying it at home. Uh, so I guess they're trading students. So she was going to come to Ireland 
because she had fallen in love with it in the past. And she was so happy and I was like, okay, how long are you gone for? And she said, nine months. So I'm thinking, hmm, uh, okay. Love story is kind of being cut short here because nine months are really long. I mean, if you, in my view, if you're either together or you're together. So I thought, well, engineering is pretty soul destroying and I'm not having any fun. You know, the bands are going nowhere because no one is completely serious. And I said, look, let's go and explore. So I'm, I take my plane end up in Cork. The moment the plane is landing, I'm like, yes, I'm staying here deal done just i just saw um all this green i don't know i just had a feeling like i think i'm gonna stay here that was five years ago and i landed in i really loved cork this tiny cute lovely city and then you just move a mile and you're in you're in the countryside Mm. also green also um this strong strong green everywhere that's just magical in a way and the rain, I mean, it was raining everywhere and ev- every time, all the time. But unlike my country, the rain wasn't so heavy. So I'm like, oh, I don't mind here. So yeah, um, fell in love with the place. Um, after two years, uh, the girl girlfriend, we kind of broke up. And uh, now I'm with uh, an Irish woman. Yes, yeah, so we, were, t- we were talking about Emma a little bit. She sounds like she's doing loads for the the planet as well so that's cool that you found someone else that kind of sparks off the same love of yeah she's really a magical person because when i lost my previous girlfriend i thought oh she was the one that's it i'm just gonna die alone doesn't matter whatever (laughs) and uh and then i met emma and she's even way she's even better you know she's way better (laughs) and uh, i couldn't imagine uh, such a person would exist even if i invented it i would have come up with something worse yeah so yeah that's how i ended up here just uh came out for love and then i fell in love with the country itself and i decided okay let's find a way to create myself a job somehow i saw that every other foreign person i knew was either in Voxpro or in whatever customer service uh, thing Mm -hmm. and i didn't feel like going that way I've been always been a bit independent and uh, I felt like I wanted to set up something on my own. I've noticed that the system here is pretty simple to work out as in registering as uh, a company. It's pretty actually pretty easy. Italy is a bureaucratic hell. So mm-hmm. this looked ridiculously easy in comparison. And I was like, okay, let's set something up. I set up a company for web design first. So I studied in CIT for a year, which was a very, very good place to study in. Mm. So I set up a web design company. I did that for about two years. And then I figured out that what people need most is not a website. A website is only a storefront, really. Um, but if your storefront is in the middle of nowhere, if it's isolated, you're not going to get any sales. It could be the most beautiful, you know, it can literally create a cathedral in the desert. So what you want to do is you want to bring people to your cathedral you want to have a way that you know you actually set up shop in the middle of a busy road not in the middle of nowhere and i figured out marketing was essential and um, maybe it would have worked better for me to learn it and as well building on my experience as a web, a web designer i can make it so that i create a promotional campaign and then that goes into a website so i know how to connect the two i know how to work it out and it kind of evolved organically like that. So the new brand is called the Lead Forge, stands for lead generation. So that's the idea. You have a company that does anything, and we bring you leads. We bring you prospective clients 
from whatever source we can. Cool. And then as well, we can also book out the details on the website to, uh, to figure it out. So we're improving every day. Uh, we try to do our best. And I think it's still connected to my past story because one thing I've always noticed is you can have the most amazing scientists come up with, oh, you know, climate change is real and we can do this to improve it and whatnot. And then nothing happens. You could have even the politicians try to do something and then nothing happens. And then I figured there is a constant in these kind of people, even activists sometimes, that we just, we don't know how to promote ourselves. We don't know how to get the voice out there. So I figured if I can learn that, then I'll, I'll get at some point where I'll be skilled enough that I can give my services to people that deserve it and give them a voice. Mm. So it's similar to what Anonymous for, for the Voilers want to do to the animals, giving them a voice. I want to do it for the humans. So the yeah. humans then will give a voice to the animals. You know, I want to be that step in the chain. So I think there is a little bit of an ethical connection as well. I was always curious. And it's something that I saw as a musician as well. I think now I think music is about 95% promotion and 5% music because you can clearly see who's on top of the charts. Uh, it's just the, the stuff that has the most money into it, the biggest producers, and it gets blasted out there. That's Yeah, it's a good, it sounds like you've found a, a nice idea anyway for your company. And in regards to the kind of ethical side that you were talking about there you mentioned that you you've always loved researching about climate change like how did that lead you into veganism and trying to buy loose veg when you can or how did that how did that come about basically that change in your lifestyle one one small uh, introduction i'm sorry if i make it too long but uh, in italy uh, things are a bit different all plastic packaging because i went up and i researched it after coming here, I just got confused. You know the way that you buy stuff in plastic and it says no, not currently recyclable? Mm. And that's something that I've never seen in my life before. It's like, what do you mean not currently recyclable? This is plastic. This is, I've recycled this all my life. And then styrofoam, not currently recyclable. I was like, what is, this is styrofoam. This is, this is recyclable. So I was trying to figure it out. I'm like, I, I went up in Italy and I checked what plastic do we recycle? And I basically figured that every single type of plastic that is packaging for food is recycled in Italy. Every single one. The only plastic that are not recyclable are like some parts of thermal water bottles, the backs of TVs, like a few very, very particular items. But every single food packaging is recyclable. So what's missing in Ireland is the whole industrial apparatus that is required to recycle styrofoam. I was telling my girlfriend, like, no, styrofoam is not the evil. You can recycle it and reuse it. So she's like, no, I don't believe it. Research it. So I looked it up and I'm like, yeah, it's 100% recyclable. Look, and I showed her a video of a machine. Uh, it's actually kind of cute. You, you, you put it into this kind of press, it gets squished, and then it comes out the other end as kind of like a cream that you can use again to start over. We're missing, we're missing the whole system here. And I've heard that, I think a year ago, China started, uh, doesn't accept our stuff anymore. Yeah, they stopped. From Ireland. And I think after that, has been, I think there's a whole underlying crisis going up right now that they don't talk to us about, but I'm sure they're in deep trouble because when I mean, you talk about China, so God only knows how much waste they were taking from us before. And um, another thing about losing, uh, fruit and veg, Italy, be it the supermarket, be it the local market, wherever you go, you can always buy loose fruit and veg. 
and uh, there's a system where we're very hygienic so you kind of have to put on a plastic glove by the rules and so then you can touch all the things and compare them without leaving your bacteria all all, all over the place yeah and then you're kind of meant to use a plastic bag to put your fruit and veg inside so we're, we're kind of brought up like that but if you go into supermarket you will see a huge section of all these loose fruit and veg only a few of them are packaged for convenience they're either pre how do you say They've been cut up and put in a bag. Sure. So they're all prepared um, or like pre-made salads that have been washed a million times so you can just eat, have them. But very few things are packaged. So it didn't use, I didn't use to do any effort because it was just the way things were. Uh, you could go to the market even and there they would give you paper bags. So all the market stalls would have paper bags. They're loose fruit and veg, which also was local. So there was no such a thing as buying oranges from south africa you just have oranges from sicily they're some of the best in the world why wouldn't you uh, we had the apples from trentino which is the mountains just two hours next to me in the north you went west a little bit in your garden lake where you have all types of wines olive oil just we have our own production so ireland is a little bit dysfunctional in that sense so sorry for the tangent um so in that sense my effort actually only started once i moved here because i'm like oh my god I've been recycling plastic all along that wasn't recyclable because I'm used to plastic being recyclable. Sure. Uh, now that I think of it, actually, I don't remember ever seeing, I mean, which plastic actually is recyclable? Like almost none of it. It's like really, packaging. it's really, really hard kind of plastics. And even then the plastics that are recyclable, you can only recycle them a couple of times. You know, they're not going to be, it's not like cardboard or aluminium, which can be yeah recycled again and again and again now that i think of it um the inside of my recording studio was made of pet bottles that had been recycled and turned into a fibrous kind of like soft material so oh, I, wow. yeah it was it was all green of course so it looked exactly like the bottles it was various shades of green but yeah um works like a charm actually so yeah, I had to wake up here a little bit. Um, Emma, my girlfriend, was also a source of help into realizing of all of this was important. Uh, as for myself, I've always only traveled with a bike because like, if you're in Cork City Center, you don't really need a car. Even when I was a musician, I would only rent a car in only the days I needed it in. And that was like 20 days a year, 30 days a year. Not that many. Or I would try to carpool and get a lift. But of course... People don't exactly appreciate when the drummer wants a lift, you know, you kind of have baggage. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, one thing I never noticed and I only noticed now, we had a talk in CIT a couple months ago about sustainability. I called my friend Monica, which was, in, she works with wind energy and whatnot. So I left her the most detail and I held the talk on the most generic part, just explaining about how factory farming has high emissions, although most people don't realize that, uh, because of how ineffective it is. It's very inefficient resource-wise. About 9% of the calories that you uh, get from feed become then the meat. Like You need to feed your animals before you kill them, mm -hmm. and it takes months to grow them. So that's what I mean. You, if you're using 10 tons of corn, you only get 9% of that back. As me yeah. and the same for protein is extremely inefficient it tends to have a con a consistent 10 to 1 uh, sorry 1 to 10 ratio in productivity compared to plants so you need 10 times more land 10 times more water 
sometimes 20 times more energy. It's something they don't tell you. You grow up, and uh, as well for me, growing up next to the Alps, yeah, you see the cows going around the mountains, and it looks like they don't need anything. Mm. Uh, what you're not seeing is that 99% of the meat in commerce don't, doesn't come from there. It comes from cows that are in big hangars where they give them tons and tons of feed all the time. Sometimes they don't even eat any grass. So you don't realize that it takes way more resources, especially in Italy growing up, you see fields of corn, you see fields of apples, you see vineyards. It took me a few years to notice that in this country, really everywhere, all I could see was pastures. Grass, 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 more grass, now and then a couple of crops. And uh, when I started researching on that, I looked up the stats and I figured out that actually about 80% of the land is pasture. In Ireland. So I'm thinking, wait, eight, yeah, in Ireland, I'm thinking, why? What, 80%? That sounds wrong. How much is it in Italy? And I found in Italy it was 10. Wow. So the problem with this country is that everything is a pasture. The whole country is a pasture, pretty much. It's just one big ranch. That means you actually don't have enough food to f feed yourself because all that pasture, uh, you know, you use the ground for the, for the cow, but the grass is not enough. Even if it's grass fed, the grass is not enough, especially in the winter, it grows more slowly. So you need, first you need a lot of fertilizer to make the grass grow back fast enough. So you need sometimes to import even fertilizers of any kind. And then second, you're always going to need feed. So we actually... I've discovered recently that we are importing, if I remember correctly, 5 billion tons of feed a year. And three of them come from Brazil and the United States. So sometimes you hear about, you know, the Amazon forest being cut down for meat production, stuff like that. But there is one ghost statistic is that, oh, but it's not meat. A lot of those fields are soy or they're corn for feed. And yeah. some of that feed comes to Ireland. So if we, let's say, shut down commerce for uh, a day, you know, for a week. We don't have food here. Literally, we're giving it all to the cows. There are not, there's not enough fields to feed the people. And that's why then you need to import everything. You're importing your, well, I'm supposed to, you probably can't grow oranges here, but you're importing other vegetables that could be grown here. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the only industries that are big enough is the one with oats. The oat industry is pretty decent because almost every cow farmer has an oat field to use it for feed and then maybe I guess they're selling some of the access to producer of you know breakfast oats and whatnot but there's almost nothing there is almost nothing being farmed here it's a very unsustainable nation at the moment and it also takes a toll in the sense of water pollution the ground gets damaged because of high ammonia you know, coming from the urea or the you know the um, the pee of the animals mm -hmm. actually ends up polluting the land so if you have cows for a long, long time, you, it needs a little bit of time then to recover. If you want to switch back the plants, then of course you have Kerry, which just, I've heard that's actually the only place that's legitimately unsuitable for most crops because it's a very rocky terrain. Sure. So that's the only place where they have kind of a justification. But most of the rest of the island is very fertile, could be used for everything you want. Uh, and as well, if you do a polytunnel, you can do whatever. But even in the open, a lot of things would grow very, very well. I've heard as well that hemp would grow very well. I've seen in Kinsale, there's very successful businesses doing every, every type of salads, stuff like that. We could do tomatoes and whatnot. Uh, but at the moment, yeah, it's a very strange situation what you have here. And uh, even historically, it goes far back to when the English used to own the land. And uh, it turns out that because they owned the land, they didn't live here. They only owned it and they lived in England. 
they didn't really care that much what was being done here. So they just set it up to whatever was the most profitable, which turned out being dairy and beef at the time. So you find yourself with generation and generation of Irish farmers that have never been exposed to anything that isn't dairy or beef. So the know-how is very limited, very, very limited. I mean, I even asked my grandfather, I was like, okay, you have a, you have a nice garden here in the back, but I never asked you, how did you learn? Did you read books? Did you go to school? And he said, oh, I just asked the neighbor. That's the thing. You could, you know, in Italy, you could ask any neighbor. You're going to find some farmers that have grown stuff for generations. You have the knowledge on how to do the best wines in the world. Olive oil. It's all very sophisticated kind of crops that are not easy to grow. They're very delicate. They require a lot of, a lot of know-how. So here, what, what, what's, what's your neighbor going to know? Dairy. And the other neighbor will also know dairy. And the other neighbor will know dairy. And so it goes on for miles and miles. Yeah. So we need more knowledge, we need to import more know-hows, and we need to start varying our production. Everyone yeah. is literally doing the same thing. And it's in any industry, that's very bad. You never want every single worker to do the same exact thing. Uh, I mean, of course, it's nice to have a national focus and be famous for something that then excels, but it is a little bit overkill. Like 80% pasture is way too much. Dairy and beef, to a lot of people in Ireland, it's more than food. It's like a way of culture. It's just family tradition. It's gone back generations. And I worry that, you know, when when I try advocate people eat more plant-based for their health, the environment, the animals, that, you know, people are taking this as a personal attack on themselves, which I can understand how they feel that. Um, there is even a problem that at the moment, some farmers are trying to fight so that they can reconvert part of their pastures into forests, mm-hmm. uh, but they cannot do it legally. Uh, I mean, sorry, they can do it legally, but they would lose their subsidies. What happens if you go into forests that you have, I think, 10 years of subsidies, subsidies and then it stops. So they, they are trying to fight to make it so that if you turn into forests, you can get subsidies that last for longer. Yeah. So at the moment, what we're doing is we're encouraging people to farm the land until it's completely depleted. And we're not giving any encouragement to diversify our farming at all. We're not giving any encouragement to recover the health of the land. Because if you take a pasture that's been, you know, peed and pooped on by the cows and stampeded on as well, because people don't think about it, but their hooves, they press the ground, changing the consistency and changing the microbiome of the ground. It can make it into a a very dead and kind of sterile environment. Mm-hmm. And normally, you wouldn't have in nature you you would have predators, so you wouldn't have these massive herbivore herds. Just you know, you know when you hear about deer overpopulation, yeah, it makes no sense because like nature doesn't. It's not like you leave a a forest and then you find infinity deers at some point and just explodes. <laughs> it stays in balance by itself. You know, a lot of people don't think about this. So when you take a lot of cows, they, they will ruin your ground over time and then it becomes harder and harder. I've looked up the procedures to maintain a, um, a dairy farm. It's very complicated, actually, to ensure that you have enough yield for the grass to keep the cows alive. Uh, a little too much, a little too less fertilizer can cause a disaster. Mm. So they're actually very skilled in doing what they do. And it's very complicated and unprofitable. But they have the subsidies to help them out. If they could reconvert part of their ground forest, what happens then is that the trees with the roots, they suck up a lot of pollutants, not only under them, but around them. So if you have a a few small little forests here and there, you can actually, um, how to say, kind of purify your ground and make it healthy again. Yeah. And it's the same 
you can also do it with crops because if you have, let's say, corn, and it's going to suck out nitrogen from the ground, then you can switch it to soy and soy and other beans also fixate nitrogen into the ground. So you've lost your nitrogen, you need it again, put another plant, it puts it back in, you need a little bit of variation. So there's also a problem with cultural of, you know, the culture of monoculture, mm -hmm. of having just the same plant for miles and miles. It's not just about the hippies and people like me that like the environment. It's about practical problems. For example, of course, if you have the same type of plant for five miles squared, what happens if one of those plants gets a disease that can propagate? Is that that disease is going to have a party and basically expand all over all of your field. At the moment, there's a huge crisis with bananas because all we farm is the Cavendish variety. So you have Cavendish bananas all over the place uh, in the in tropical areas and just miles and miles of bananas. Uh, if I remember correctly, it's a, it's a fungi that's causing the problem. And sometimes they just can't stop it and they have to just completely get rid of a whole field of bananas. So they're trying to figure out genetic modifications and other things. But if you have different crops that are smaller and more varied, Sure, it's more complicated logistically, but you have insects that can rely on different types of pollens, so you get more biodiversity, which also then gives you more wild animals and stuff like that. You have biodiversity, you have more health in your ground. It's just, how to say, it's a nonsense approach. It requires a little bit more know-how, but I understand it's very tempting to be like, okay, I'm just going to buy this amount of land and I'll just put this type of uh, produce and I'm going to do my business about just that. And I'm just going to do, you know, corn forever. And that's it. But then, of course, you're going to need pesticides on top of it because that one type of insect that is very happy on corn, you're going to have billions of those. So you're going to need pesticides to kill them all. They're going to have no natural predators because you're not incentivizing it to be there. You know, like just to give an example, have you ever heard of the four pests? No, I haven't. So this was China uh, on the communist regime. Mao Zedong made this campaign about the four pests, if I remember correctly. And it was about eradic eradicating. I don't remember what they were. I remember only one pest was the sparrows. Okay. Because they said, oh, the, these birds, they eat our grains. It's a problem. We need to get rid of the sparrows. So 20 million people died. So how did this happen? They, killed, they started encouraging killing the sparrows. And what happened after a while is that there was a whole invasion of, I think, locusts and bedbugs that ate all the fields because, surprise, surprise, sparrows eat bedbugs. And if you kill off the sparrows, you get a million insects that then eat your whole crops. They're completely unstoppable. They come up as a horde. Their population explodes. Pesticides wouldn't work. Killing them wouldn't work. So they had famine and 20 million people died. Wow. So when you, when you mess with nature, you need reason and a little bit of knowledge to be sure what you're doing makes sense. Yeah. Because sometimes there are very, very bad consequences. I know that not all farmers have the possibility to get into permaculture and it might not be profitable enough. And I can imagine even random problems like, let's say, if you're selling corn, all you need to do is find buyers for corn. But if you're selling five different types of vegetables, you're going to need to find suppliers and uh, resellers for those. So, of course, business can become more complicated. But it is very important that we vary vary the population. Another example is the US. There was, there's been a lot of talk about almonds. Um, what I think happened is that dairy farmers were trying to pin the blame on the almond farmers. I don't know if are you aware in the last few years there's been a big drought in California. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
and it was so dry. I even remember someone set up a business of coloring the grass green because people had their lawns yellow for months and these people were literally painting their grass so they would look green again like uh i don't know i don't know was that maybe it was i hope it was fake news but even just the idea of this yeah. wouldn't come up without a certain situation so anyway i remember a lot of articles for a long time talking about how almonds uh use so many thousands of liters of water and they're such an unsustainable crop and, and all this story. What I've discovered is true is that, um, yes, any kind of crop requires thousands of liters of water because they count rainwater as well. So if you think about how much it rains every day, that's millions of tons of water. So of course, all nature requires thousands of liters of water to grow because it comes from the sky. Now, if you go and you look at the cows, they require way more because not only they need the water to drink, then they need the water for the grass to come up and they need the water that was used for their feed. But it was easy to just make an article and be like, oh, one almond requires 1,000 liters of water. So you're killing the environment, stupid vegan. You know, it was very common to see these kind of articles. One thing I have to say that is a bit bad on the side of the almonds is that California has a massive amount of fields of almonds. So they have a problem with the pests that cover them. So they have to use a lot of pesticides. And the bees, uh, there was an ar another article about the bees being used as basically kind of like forced labor. So they say, oh, the almonds are not vegan because they use bees as forced labor to pollinate them and the bees die. Why is that? It's because the almond flowers have a very, very tiny amount of pollen. So it's exhausting for the bees to just live on almonds. There are no other flowers in the fields because it's only almonds for how far as the eye can see. And then that made me research again, how is it in Italy? And I looked it up that we don't use farm bees for almonds because we put almond crops in the middle of other crops. So the mm -hmm. bees can either go in the wild and get a couple of flowers from there. They can go wherever they want. They also pollinate the almond trees because of course they use everything they can to survive and stay alive. And also it's not just honeybees, but there's going to be all the other wild insects doing the same. So I, I think there is a common theme that I found on all my research. It, all, it comes up and again and again and again. If you're doing something with animals, it tends to be very inefficient. It costs 10 times more in whatever resource you're thinking about. It could be energy, it could be land, and pollution also tends to be higher. And as well, if you abandon common sense and you just farm the same thing for a huge amount of land, that also gives you problems. And that's why as well, I do agree with the idea of organic and trying to like organic, all, they still use some pesticides. They have a list of approved pesticides they're allowed to use, which are way more, they tend to have less of an impact on biodiversity and they tend to be less toxic. So right. they're not perfect, but uh, these people still need to make some kind of a living. And that's of course why as well, it tends to be more expensive because you have to follow a list of rules. You have to be, you get inspections. It's, it's quite rigid. Uh, so there's a lot of articles as well trying to spread this information about the fact that, oh, organic doesn't mean anything. It's the same stuff. They're just making you pay because they like money and da-da-da-da-da-da. It's not true. You can try it yourself. You can taste any kind of vegetables or fruit and you'll find they are tastier. They look different. They feel different. You can find huge vegetables sometimes that are non-organic and they just taste like water. While you can find smaller ones that will cost more by weight but you eat one and you literally feel nourished. You feel different. In regards to, I guess, Ireland and, and the fact that we use so many 
pastures here I presume there's there's factory farming here as well I know worldwide it's 99% of of animal products are from factory farms 1% are not is here any any different the problem with factory farming and uh, seeing it is that it's not meant to be seen you can see the cows on the field so you see them all and you can notice there's also a very small amount of them because you'll see it takes an acre for one cow to survive a whole acre that's about the size of an international rugby field mm. that's why you don't see that many cows in a field they're actually pretty comfortable they look pretty comfortable uh, we must remember as well though that they tend to be very exposed to bad weather and they have very little shelter because by law if you want to classify your land by pasture there needs to be almost nothing on it and that's another thing that needs to be fixed the farmers are not allowed to have trees and of course in nature an herbivore would have some shelter from the elements but in this case they don't you can only see trees usually bordering between a crop and another or a pasture and another there's not much to go by uh, so they're either closed in to their shelters now and then or they're just left out there to pasture the factory farms they're just gigantic hangars full of cows usually they're not close to the main roads they're hard to see you don't see them uh, we actually have a lot of chicken and pigs. You're not going to see them. Yeah. They're hi hidden away. So whenever you see one cow there on the field, when you're like taking the bus or whatever, for every one of those cows, there's probably a hundred stuck in a little uh, thing far away. I haven't checked those statistics. So I have to get back to you if I can find something. I haven't looked into if there's like a classification of how many are grass fed, how many are you know, in the open. And as well, even that will be misleading because, for example, if you look up free-range eggs, that doesn't mean the chicken are outside all the time. That only means that the farm has some outside land where occasionally the chicken can roam. So they could be identical to caged chicken. It could be virtually the same situation. And then I'm not too sure how many inspections they actually get to verify if they really are free-range. I find that one, that's one of the most bullshit things I know in life. When people tell me, oh, but I get my eggs free range. I'm like, it really means nothing. When you hear free range, it just means they might have, you know, 10 by 10 meters to walk out. But then there's like 5,000 of them sharing that little space now and then. I think so even usually, those... Usually it means they can have, they can have access to the outside. Like they're, they might be in a barn and there might not be any cages. They're there's thousands of them in a barn and then there's like a little door that has to be a specific size and that can be open for a certain amount of hours a day and they can leave yeah you know but it's they're not, it's not exactly they're all ushered outside you know they exactly exactly and there's one category i don't know the name in english because it never comes up it's that category in between cage and free range we call it at ground okay uh, it's basically you have a big hanger and they roam around on the ground, but you, they basically have the same space they would have in a cage because you just yeah. overcrowd them. I think it's, so it's in any case, barn eggs, I think they're called, or something, mm -hmm. something like barn raised, or something like that's, that. That's where they're in, anyways. A barn, like they're, they're put in yeah. a barn. So, yeah, I think in all cases, if you go and look at it, basically, when a chicken gets put in the oven, they have more space than they had in the rest of their life, which is like the saddest thing you can think of. Yeah. So why is that? That is because of the inefficiency I was mentioning before. It's just 
too expensive to farm animals. Some people come to me and they say, oh, but in Africa, if they don't have a couple of animals, they can't survive and all these kind of stories. And uh, sure, in some cases, it could be that you have desert land and you just have one goat that goes around, eats a little bit of grass and you kill it, and it's kind of like free to maintain. But most of the time, on large scale, it just, you just require way more land and way more water to get the same amount of meat. And in this country as well, the diet is so meat heavy that most people don't realize how many resources they really are being utilized for their meat. And the subsidies as well skewer perspective. Because first, you have the industry that will overcrowd the animals so that it, they can be as profitable as possible. So you're going at an, an absolute extreme of pain and exploitation because otherwise it wouldn't be profitable. It wouldn't be possible any other way. So you have to crowd them, then you have to give them antibiotics because they get sick, because they're all close together. And it would happen with humans. You put 50 people in my bedroom, they're going to all get the flu if one of them has the flu. Yeah. So that's why we talk about antibiotics and animals. And then you need to give the massive amount of food that needs to come from somewhere. So you're going to need the land. And that's why we're losing the Amazonic forest and other forests around the world because we need more space for corn because of our huge appetite for meat. So most people don't realize if they would switch to plants, they would only need a little, little piece of land compared to before. They would need 10 times less. That would be enough. And they could allow themselves all the luxury foods they wanted. They could go on dates, avocados, whatever. It still would consume way less resources. Some people, you know, they buy the meat and they think, oh, it's local, it's local. But they forget those 3 billion tons of corn coming from Brazil. There's a big problem in um, Africa as well that a lot of first world countries, America and Europe, are sourcing their corn and soy from Africa. They, they said there's like corrupt governments over there and they're selling their corn to America and to farmers because it, like, it makes more money, but they have all this sand, this land. It's basically causing a huge poverty issue because there are yeah. people starving and all of, their, all of their food is being sold to, to farmers, you know? So there's actual there's social issues being created by this as well as climate and animal like, rights um, issues. So I don't know economically, but ecologically, I'm 100% sure we are wasting away our earth. We are using it in such a way that because you're being 10, 10 times more expensive resource-wise, because you're inefficient and you're using animals, we could probably support way more population easier if we did a switch to vegan. And a lot of people are becoming away to this. But yeah. most people don't know the details. They don't know, you know... Maybe they see, um, they watched uh, what, Cowspiracy. Cowspiracy, yeah. You know, the, the data on Cowspiracy is actually pretty accurate. It's very hard to estimate because you're talking about the emissions of the whole planet. It's quite hard to uh, figure it out. You have to calculate literally everything. And oh, everything is an estimate. Everything really is an estimate. So where but would you, where would you encourage be. people to go to find this information themselves if they want to look into the environmental impact that our diet has? What, what resources, what platforms and what documentaries would you recommend that they get into? Depends yeah, on the amount of time they have. I think if you want a neat package where the research has been done and compressed, Cowspiracy is still gold. Now, the data is becoming old, which means our situation is probably made quite worse than it was in the movie. So keep mm. that in mind. Um, 
yeah, I mean, if you have more time to put into it, like some months ago, the IPCC climate report came out, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So that made a lot of noise because we were reminded we have only 12 years, which I guess now it's 11, to work on global uh, warming before things get too bad. There's another report that is very interesting, which is called the World Watch Report from the World Watch Institute. If you look up livestock and climate change, there's a whole report that estimates what the impact of livestock is, and it takes the data coming from an FAO analysis from the past. So it's called the long shadow of livestock. It was a report where they hypothesized that the impact of animal agriculture on the environment uh, was about 15%. So 15% of gases that caused global warming were coming from agriculture. Mm. Then World Watch Institute came out with a report that said, no, you've made a few mistakes here. Let us correct you. Basically, they figured out that Uh, They didn't take into account the respiration of the animals, which also creates CO2. They didn't figure out that there's a lot of land being used for the feed. So they calculated all the forest that has been erased, which would have been carbon negative. And they figured out all the lands that were being overlooked. They counted methane, uh, as in methane was already accounted for, but they used a different global warming potential data. Basically, they said, because we don't have 100 years to work on this, but we only have like 20, and methane degrades in very few years, methane is actually more important. So it ended up being one of the gas that if we get rid of, we could actually bring the temperature down pretty quickly. Okay. Uh, they forgot about the fact that the data was old. So they said, wait, from 2002 to 2009, the livestock products increased by 12%. So they corrected that. So they they found a lot of small inconsistencies and other gases that are used, for example, in refrigeration to keep the products alive. So they they give it another look and uh, it came up doing way more. Sure. So if you get rid of that, you could, you're using less crops to feed people. You can regenerate forests because of course, if you're using a 10th of the land you needed before, the other nine tenths, you don't need them anymore. It can either become housing or it can become forests. So there is actually potential for completely reversing um, what's happening. But I, I'm a little bit sad when I think about it because I see how hard to convince people are to move away from their um, habits. Mm-hmm. So I, I have friends that are like, oh, I'm not going to stop eating meat because it's tasty. And I just, I don't have an answer to that. Because I'm like, how can you, how could taste have more value than the survival of your species and your children and your grandchildren? I just, I don't, I don't get it. But I guess we are imperfect beings and we don't always do the right thing. We do a lot of mistakes. We, we have corrupt politicians. We have our problems. We have politics in the workplace. So I just kind of have to accept that. But it took me a long time to, um, yeah, after going vegan, you know, I discovered, oh, actually, yeah, I never told you the story because you asked me earlier what, yeah, what moved what, me to go vegan. Switch, the connection yeah. So it wasn't sustainability, it wasn't health, it wasn't even ethics. Just, I met the first vegetarian I ever met in my life and they, they explained, you know, I'm vegetarian and I'm like, what's that? What does that mean? And in the moment I realized I didn't know vegetarians were real. I, I, thought it was, um, I thought it was an idea. I didn't think you could do it, you know? So the moment I saw someone that actually was, I said, oh, that's so cool. Like, uh, I could survive without killing animals. 
why not? Yeah. Uh, so I was like, oh, let's let me try it for a couple months. If I survive, I'll keep it. <laughs> so that was the beginning of that. And then the same person told me, oh, you know, by the by the way, what they do to uh, you know what they do to the chicken, to the cows. I'm like, no. I mean, I'm assuming the chickens just naturally produce eggs and we sell them and mm -hmm. the cows just naturally produce milk and they sell them. And then, you know, I was exposed to the whole reality, you know, and yeah, it's, you kind of feel like an idiot because I'm like, how could I not have questioned the fact that chickens do an egg every day? And how did I not ask myself where all the males go? How did I not figure out that to make milk as a mammal, you need to be pregnant? You know, all these little realizations and you just realize you're an idiot, <laughs> not to say it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, after that, that's what I, that's when I started find, finding out like, oh, actually this is pretty good for the environment. I didn't know you can survive with these nutrients. And then this is the amount of land you need for corn compared to cows. And this is the amount of protein you can get from nuts. You just, if you're a curious person, you go down a road, like I've been six years researching and it just never ends. I keep discovering things. Uh, the last discovery I made is pretty basic. Some people would think it's obvious, but I didn't know that the leather industry is not a byproduct of the meat industry. The no. leather industry is its own industry. They, they, they grow, they grow. They raise their cows for leather, just for leather, you know? Yeah. So that's brutal to, to realize like, oh my God, they're just being killed for the skin. And then of course they'll tell you, oh, but you use all of the animal. And from what I know is kind of true because still, but. I mean, definitely not with the chicken, the, the fact of, you know, the, the chicks being ground alive and all that story. I don't want to go into the sad part anyway. That's fair. Uh, but yeah, I've just realized all these things. And then I noticed how hard it was to convince people. And then 2015 happened. Now, if one goes on Google Trends and they look up vegan on mm. Google Trends, it will show you a graph of the research, the amount of research that's been done on the world vegan. And if you look, uh, it's always been going up and up and up and up and up. But 2015 was a particularly explosive moment. And I always wondered why. I think at the time we had Dr. Greger was becoming pretty big with nutrition facts and how not to die. Uh, McDougall was going pretty strong. Colin Campbell, the China study was going around. The internet had at this point been universal. Social media was helping out. But also activist groups started to realize I think, I think anyway, it's my hypothesis that we've started using more positive messages. Uh, there was the health trend as well, all the influencers saying, oh, look how I'm beautiful and vegan and whatnot, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, that I think is tipping a lot of people off that there is another way to buy people over. You can buy them over with food. You can make them realize that the taste is not going to be a sacrifice. They can still eat their junk food. Uh, I mean, you can see it from the Greg's sausage rolls. What a, so much noise it made. Yeah. F sausage roll. I'm like, that to me is the <laughs> most, the worst possible reason to go vegan is the sausage roll. Like, oh, your health, you could live to 90 in full health. You can save the planet. Uh, you can save the poor animals being tortured. Or you can have a sausage roll. <laughs> and so many people coming in for the sausage rolls. I'm like, okay, whatever, whatever works. Yeah. Whatever I'll go works with it. You know, I'll go with it. Yeah. But it's, I generally, I did not expect it. I just say it comes out of nowhere for me. I would have never, I could have thought about it for millennia. What's the, what's the solution to this problem? I wouldn't have come up with sausage rolls, never. <laughs> but um, so, uh, yeah, I, we mentioned when we were talking before about Positively Eventful, 
So I wanted to talk about that yes, maybe. Please do mention that. Yeah. So this is something that I think it's a bit unique to Cork is that I've got this beautiful girlfriend, right? And just one month after we met, uh, we were talking to Mary. She's a, a vegan from Kinsale, which she's been vegan for 35 years. So she was vegan when you needed to go into health shop to buy tomato passata. Yeah. That's how bad it was, no? And um, she had set up a little social groups that would meet up now and then um, for, you know, small, um, small gatherings, just having a tea together, whatever. But it didn't grow up that much. And we were talking with her and saying, but is there nothing for vegans to do socially here? Is there no vegan community, nothing at all? She's like, no, maybe you should make one. So we thought, well, maybe we should make one. And uh, we set up a meetup group. We called it Cork uh, Vegans and Vegetarians Everyone Welcome. The, the name was a little bit long at first. Uh, now it's called Cork Vegans and Veggies. So we started off from there. We did a few events now and then where we would meet up and maybe go and eat you know, vegan donuts wherever we could or you know, a pastry. Uh, we had a meeting with Sarah, which was, uh, she is this lovely uh, baker. She was doing vegan donuts at the time. Then she moved into pastries. It was lovely, you know, to figure out you could have vegan cakes and whatever you wanted. We started connecting and a small community started growing. Friends were made. They feel like they're lifelong friends at this point. We're yeah. very, very tight. It was very nice to make all this knowledge of these people. And uh, after that, me and her, we went on a vacation to Edinburgh. Yeah, we went to this place called the Flying Duck. Check it out if you're ever over there. It's an amazing pub that has the most luxurious burgers and juices. It's all vegan. And they had this vegan fete, like a vegan feast, where we would find there was someone was selling focaccias and pizzas. Someone was selling vegan lollipops. Everything was vegan. And it was just a variety of crafts and foods. And we came back just in love with this idea, thinking, well, could we do it in Cork? Can we pull it off? How could we do it? So we, we, it was in the back of our minds for a few months. And then eventually, we decided to make a Christmas market in Ballinlock. It's this little uh, suburban fraction of Cork called Ballinlock. It has a community center. And luckily, we managed to talk to the ex-mayor, which manages the, the place there uh, we rented it and there i was off to make all the promo i could on facebook you know social media mm-hmm. get the people in the door we wouldn't know what got, what was going to happen it could have been nobody you know we made all the promo we could there was a lot of response we called in all the vendors that we could traders of every kind emma had a nervous breakdown trying to track down everyone and because it, it's very hard to get hold of business people they're very yeah. busy they don't respond they forget uh, they forget who you are. It just takes forever. Eventually, yeah. she had something like 12, I think, businesses. Some came down even from other cities. And we had the first vegan Christmas market in Ireland ever. Way. And that was a great success. We had about 150 people coming in the door. Uh, a lot of vegans came in thinking, oh my God, it's going to just be me and a couple of friends. And then they found themselves with this huge crowd. Every vendor sold out all they had. And uh, that went pretty well. So January, we did nothing. Then in February, we partnered up with a big uh, gym to make the festival in there because the trainer there was vegan. And there was also a vegan cafe, which is oh. still now in business. It's called Lionel. And he sells amazing stuff. He's becoming very famous very quickly because he's really good. 
So check him out, Lionel. And yeah, February was also success. We had about 250 people, more stands, more stalls, a uh, few logistics to work out. It was complicated to do the promo. And then the gym closed down, unfortunately. And we moved eventually into the Kino, which didn't exist before. And it just came in conveniently when we were looking for somewhere bigger. And the Kino is a lovely ex-cinema with a cafe in it. So it's a very, very lovely environment. Um, if you look up the Positive Market on Facebook, you should probably find it or Positively Eventful. You'll find pictures, you'll find videos. It's an amazing environment. And the whole idea is that we don't have, there's nothing that is not vegan in there. It's a safe place to go in and for once, you can just relax. You don't need to worry um, about checking the ingredients. You know, when you go to a place and you have, you've, you're reading the ingredients and something and it has milk powder in it for no reason. Yeah, exactly. think you're like, why is that milk so, powder? They don't need to worry about that. We don't have complete control over the cafe, the entrance, because that's its own business and they have the regular clients. So they don't want to remove everything. But I think maybe we're, we're winning their hearts over because I think they're helping us more and more. Uh, but the whole market, yeah, nothing that isn't vegan. You can just relax and for once you're in a vegan world and it just Fabulous. feels so satisfying. The atmosphere is very nice. Uh, I had the idea as well to add um, a video because there's this cinema screen and I thought might as well use it. So I created a montage of about an hour and a half of videos of animals just displaying their emotions and their um, personalities. So it's mostly videos like from the Dodo and sites like that where they show you, I don't know, like a dog and a toucan interacting or whatever. Yeah, They're always yeah. adorable. And they show you, the, you can see the personalities in the animals, the more shy ones, the the scary ones are the ones that are more approachable, the playful ones. Yeah, we do this every month. Yeah, that's something I really believe in, a positive attitude to do your activism, to propagate your ideas. You want to show you're a happy person. You don't want to show that veganism made you bitter or miserable, of course, yeah. because then you're giving the idea that going vegan is being miserable. Yeah. But the truth is that in practice, it's very easy to do. I don't care what anyone says. It's really, really easy to do. Mm -hmm. And for me as an Italian, it's even easier because I've grown up on pasta and rice and lasagna. So when I went vegetarian, I didn't really buy a recipe book. I just, I just adapted a couple of recipes. When I went vegan, I still didn't buy a recipe book until, unless I wanted to do something very fancy. How did your family find, because I know it's sometimes like... I have some family in Italy and when I go over there, they don't know what to feed me. Like, so I'm like, oh, I'll cook for myself. But <laughs> did, how did your parents or your family or friends in Italy react to you going vegan? My parents didn't have any problem and they understood it, but they are still not quite coming over. Sure. My mom is almost there. My dad, he likes to believe in order and the system. And he wants to always be optimistic. So he's like, oh, but uh, we need the nutrients. Because he, wants to, he tries to justify it, basically. We had very sure. heated discussions. And I found that the only thing that has ever won him over is when I told him, look, animal agriculture helped us go through the Middle Ages because we needed it to survive the winters. We needed animals as a source of nutrition. We didn't have refrigerators. We didn't have, we didn't have worldwide commerce. Uh, we, you couldn't get pineapple from the Caribbeans when it was the winter in 12th yeah. century England. So <laughs> you went with butter and that's why the culture of the Northern countries is butter, butter and more butter. So I can understand that, but I told you, look, we have global commerce now. We have nutrition, we have science. It's a new era. 
we're progressing where we don't need the animals anymore. We can leave them be. And that was the only argument that ever hit home with him. But when I, he, I think everyone, there's some way to strike, how do you, how do you say, to touch a nerve. You just need to touch the right yeah. nerve. So don't insist violently on one argument. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't work the first, the first, the second, the third time, it will never work. Yeah. Try something else. And if that doesn't work, they might need to hear it from someone else. Mm-hmm. Sometimes just <laughs> you can fight as hard as you want, but they just don't want to hear it from you for some reason. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll hear it from a random coworker and they'll go vegan. Yeah. And you're like, what the hell, man? I've been telling you for years. What is this bullshit? Yeah, that so- happens. I've seen it happen. Yeah, it needs to happen at the right time. I even had that experience. I had someone tell me they couldn't understand why I still ate dairy if I went vegetarian for the animals. And I was like, la, 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 I don't want to listen. <laughs> a couple of months later, yeah, I happened exactly. to hear something else from a friend. And then I was like, oh God, I need to go. Yeah. I'm going and to if you go aggressive, the, the shield gets reinforced. I find mm-hmm. that people get very defensive they take it you just don't want to make it into an attack into the ego i think sometimes people identify with their uh, lifestyle i think as long as people are making steps in the right direction like they can move in any pace they want you know so my dad is not vegan or vegetarian although his fiance is but he would he would now eat vegetarian a lot of the time. Same as my partner. He's not vegan or vegetarian, but again, he cuts out. He does most of the cooking. It's fabulous, but he's cut <laughs> out a lot of, you know, he eats vegan a lot with me wow. most yeah. of the time. That's so cool. I think as long as people are taking steps in the right direction, you know, it's okay that they have their own pace and it's okay that you slip up and you, you're eating something and you didn't realize it had milk powder in it. I think just people need to kind of, just educate themselves i heard something very nice from a friend they said that veganism is not an exercise in self-control so a lot of people when they hear oh you're vegan you must have such a hard life trying to resist this and try to resist that it's not about i'm trying to resist meat and i'm trying to resist dairy i'm doing my own thing i'm having fun I'm eating what I love. I never deny myself anything. When is the next positive market, positive eventful market? You guys have a Facebook page that they can follow? Definitely. You look on Facebook for positively eventful. You then, you like us and then you click on following and on in your news feed, you click see first because uh, Facebook at the moment is having a crisis and... uh, It basically doesn't show any of your content to anyone ever. Mm -hmm. So do us a favor. And if you really want to know about us, uh, tick us on uh, see first, or you'll never see anything from us unless we put money into Facebook. And non-vegans and vegetarians, they all welcome to the market as well if they're interested in trying out some vegan food. They're absolutely welcome. And I've been pleasantly surprised by the amount of non-vegans that are there. I would almost wager there are more non-vegans than there are vegans. People just love the food we have. And we have the vendors. I just have very, I have huge respect for the vendors because they are so passionate about the food they do. They try to make everything they can to make it tastier. So some of our vendors are vegan only and some of them are non-vegan and they do vegan dishes only for our particular day. Uh, wow. There's Eddie, for example, from Blue uh, Frog chocolate little blue frog chocolate and he's a trained artisan pastry chef from like 15 years and he does the most amazing wheats you'll see ever you have vasco from core crafts 
which sells a kind of similar leather bag, but they're made of cork. They're actually made from trees. And that has a strong connection with sustainability. Yeah, I could mention all of them, but I, I'm sorry, guys, that I haven't mentioned, but uh, <laughs> we, we have a limited amount of time. And yeah, they can, they can check out your, your yeah. page on Facebook. For the people in Cork, we also have a meetup event at the market. So there'll be a, a small table where strangers can just know one another at the positive market and just make new friends and join the community. Besides that, every two weeks we do on Tuesdays a board game night in Malay Kitchen, which is a lovely uh, Malaysian restaurant that allowed us to take their uh, room on the side. Just look on meetup.com, Cork Vegans, and you can find all the list of the events. We're always active. We've been active for three years now. Every week, something's up. Amazing. And if you're from Dublin, check out the Dublin Vegans because there is such a group in Dublin too, uh, held by the amazing Carlos. He does yeah. an amazing job. But uh, yes, I won't keep you too much longer into your evening. I'll let you enjoy the rest of your Monday night. Thank you so much again, Simone, for spending so long talking to me about environmentalism and all things sustainable. So I really do appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was a very enjoyable conversation. And yeah. uh, all the best of luck to the podcast. Thank you Hopefully so much. Hopefully it becomes massive. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. Thank you so much. I shall talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. you like that I spent so long editing this episode myself and Simone ended up talking for almost two hours and I cut a whole hour from the episode from us chatting so I had to really kind of fine-tune our really detailed conversation and just keep my favorite bits in so hopefully you liked it if anyone is not on a plant-based diet or veering towards it and maybe you're curious I would suggest challenge 22 if you want to trial a 22 day vegan or plant-based diet you basically get a mentor it's completely online it's completely free and you get recipe ideas and you're told what to look out for to make sure that you're doing it safely because like I said I'm a bit of a junk food vegan I do not eat healthy at all but I mean there's people who aren't vegan who don't eat healthy as well so an unhealthy vegan diet is still an unhealthy diet but I really should try to do it better and make sure that I get my vitamins and everything. If you're interested I would suggest signing up to that. The reason it's challenge 22 is because it's for 22 days and it takes 21 days apparently to break a habit and cheese has casein in it, casomorphine, which is a genuine addictive substance. So before I was vegan, I was genuinely addicted to cheese and that's why so many people say they can't give up cheese because they love it so much. But that is actually because it has this morphine in it and once you kick it for a couple of weeks, 21 days, scientists say, but you know, that might change depending on your own genetics or in your own makeup. And you will eventually not be so addicted. So I actually don't crave cheddar and mozzarella more at all. And even though vegan cheeses don't exactly replicate the same stuff, I've kind of not eaten it for so long now that I kind of, I just, I don't miss it really at all. But that's a good site to 
look at and there's some really good talks out there there's really good recipe books the how not to die recipe book you can get thug kitchen avant-garde vegan there's so many options out there and hey even if you start with one meal a day just make sure you have a plant-based cereal plant-based breakfast and then move on for theirs I started before I even went vegan before I realized I was already swapping out milk so I stopped drinking a pint of milk a day and went on to just swap it out for oat milk which is really easy to grow and it grows in Ireland oats and I was using Albro soy yogurts instead instead of buying other yogurts dairy yogurts and whatnot so there's little switches that you can make that can all add up and I will probably do maybe an animal rights episode as well. I know I definitely have a few really exciting animal highlighted podcast episodes coming up. I'm really looking forward to those. But this is just kind of a taster into the sustainable side of our diet and why it is that scientists recommend a plant-based diet as local as possible but even as Simone said when you're eating vegan or plant-based and you're eating the odd avocado or orange shipped in from abroad it's still a lower carbon footprint than eating animal-based products because of all the feed flown in for them and the extra energy that it takes for them there's nothing is going to be perfect but like that quote I keep going back to we need a million people doing zero waste or sustainable living imperfectly than doing it perfectly but we really should think of the animals as well of course because you know it's not just it's not just ourselves or the earth that our choices impact but also living beings so that's my own personal take on it But take from this episode what you will. If you didn't like it or you liked it, please let me know any feedback that you have. You can email me cara, C-E-A-R-A at bookofleavespodcast.com or leave any feedback on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook. Also, some really good resources were mentioned here. Some doctors like Dr. Gregor and documentaries like Cowspiracy and I've linked all those in the show notes and again if they're not linked in your podcast providers show notes you can go onto my website or you can just google it and it should come up fairly easy enough but anyway this episode has been long enough if you want to hop over listen to episode 7 I'm going to be talking to Dr. Eilish Brosnan all about how long she's been vegan for the kind of services she provides, the basics on eating a vegan diet, what to look out for on your plate, her workout lifestyle and how a plant-based diet influences that and then raising kids. She has two kids that are also vegan and how she kind of manages that in certain situations. So it's just kind of a brief introduction from someone who has been vegan in Ireland for so long and she offers some really helpful services and courses out there for people who do want to transition to a plant-based diet or even just do a crash course and you can even just sign up to simple recipes and everything. So that's the next the next 
gosh, I'm really mixing up my words today. That is the next episode. So thank you so much for listening to this one. Sure, look, this is a really long episode. I'll let you guys go. Tune into episode seven. I will talk to you guys in a bit. Thank you.